0: The year is 1987 and American TV networks launch a number of short-lived shows such as Starman, The Popcorn Kid, and Probe. In a fit of midlife nostalgia and an effort to remind the world of shows they have forgotten, lone podcast pilot Chris Cooling steps into the Forgotten TV studio 30 years later. Forgotten TV. I am your ghost, Chris Cooling. Forgotten TV is a spine-tingling podcast, sustained by listeners like you. You can enter the realm of Forgotten TV through Patreon or PayPal and join the spooky ranks of show producers. This episode of Forgotten TV has been summoned by the Sinister Six, Will Weirton Doc Fanto Joshua Draxkell Ron the Reanimated Kenny Screamgill and Tony Spook If you dare you can also support the podcast by using the Forgotten TV affiliate links lurking on the website and show notes found right in your cursed podcast player My eternal gratitude to all for your support of Forgotten TV.
1: (laughs) Monsters do exist in us and among us. They walk in our shadow. They can prey on us more as we fear them less. We should know We created them. Now we try to tell them to go away. Our new and knowledgeable ways provide a certain freedom for the dark creatures. George A. Romero, 1978
0: The evening of April 4th, 1968, George Romero was making the drive from Pittsburgh to New York City. His trunk contained film cans of the Pittsburgh-produced Night of the Flesh Eaters that he was driving up to the offices of Walter Reed's Continental Film Distributors. Romero, a TV commercial and industrial film producer, had made shorts before for clients like Calgon and WQED's Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. But now, the 28-year-old had directed and co-written his first feature length film, which would eventually be included in a short list of films from the era that would influence a new generation of filmmakers and change the horror genre forever. On the drive up, Romero would hear on the radio that civil rights activist Martin Luther King Jr. had been shot and killed in Memphis, Tennessee. And he realized the ending to his film would likely have an additional, unintended impact. Shot on a budget of just $114,000, Romero's stark black-and-white horror film initially had a hard time getting theatrical distribution. Finally, Walter Reed's Continental Film Distributors, who owned a New York theater chain and was looking to widen their catalog away from arthouse-style films, gave it a chance, and would book it in their cinemas. A title conflict with a 1964 film prompted them to change the title, but they neglected to place a copyright on the film. Oops. Dissatisfied with the returns from these bookings and allegedly being stiffed on box office revenue, Romero and crew realized they'd need to hustle their own film to get noticed. Fourteen prints were made, and... Night of the Living Dead, was released back on their home turf of Pittsburgh starting on Wednesday, October 2nd, 1968. Although decades later, the story would have it that the premiere was held on Halloween night. Booked in area theaters as a double feature alongside 1965's Doctor Who and the Daleks, Night of the Living Dead was indeed noticed by the local press, as well as Variety, that printed, Until the Supreme Court establishes clear-cut guidelines for the pornography of violence, Night of the Living Dead will serve quite nicely as an outer-limit definition by example. In a mere 90 minutes, this horror film, pun intended, casts serious aspersions on the integrity and social responsibility of its Pittsburgh-based makers. Distributor Walter Reed, the film industry as a whole, and exhibitors who book the pick, as well as raising doubts about the future of the regional cinema movement and about the moral health of filmgoers who cheerfully opt for this unrelieved orgy of sadism. The following month, the film expanded to about 20 additional states, booked heavily in Texas, Arizona, Ohio, and New York. A William Castle-like marketing strategy was used, promising a $50,000 payout if anyone died from a heart attack while watching Night of the Living Dead. With the film release beating the debut of the MPAA rating system by a month, moviegoers of any age were able to buy tickets. Much to the chagrin of parents who even complained about the film's TV and radio ads.
1: This is the sound of a normal heart. Now, listen to that same heart subjected to a night of total terror. Night of the living dead. The dead who live on living flesh the dead whose haunted souls hunt the living the living whose bodies are the only food for these ungodly creatures Ah! night of the living dead a bizarre adventure in fear an experience in shock more shattering than your strangest nightmare night night Of the Living Dead, a night
0: of total terror. Night of the Living Dead broke the rules of the horror genre, as did Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho from 1960 and Roman Polanski's Rosemary's Baby, also in 1968. Instead of taking place in a gothic mansion, old-world European castle, or haunted house, as many traditional horror films were set, these films were set in contemporary American locales. A rural farmhouse, a roadside motel, a Manhattan apartment complex. The choice of black and white gave the film a documentary cinema verite feel, as did the choice of a black male lead and his blunt end at the hands of a redneck posse that seemed only too familiar to a certain segment of the audience. Night of the Living Dead also gave us the modern zombie, although the term is never used in the film. As depicted in 1932's White Zombie, 1943's I Walked with a Zombie, and 1966's The Plague of the Zombies, these were either living or reanimated people, mindless slaves under the control of a voodoo or witchcraft practitioner. Night of the Living Dead's ghouls rose without explanation and ate the flesh of the living, although occasionally they would just kill. Romero's The Crazies from 1973 saw a bioweapon cause hysterical homicidal insanity in the infected. In the following years, let sleeping corpses lie, a radioactive device used for pest control had disastrous consequences when the dead were reanimated and they were hungry. By the end of the 70s, these new zombies started to proliferate in film, which included Romero's own Dawn of the Dead from 1978. Two years after Living Dead, Romero formed Laurel Productions as a subsidiary of his Latent Image Production Company. In 1973, he met and was interviewed by journalist Richard P. Rubenstein for Filmmaker's Newsletter. Rubenstein, an MBA grad from Columbia with experience as a Wall Street brokerage consultant, had come up through the ranks of TV production starting as a PA on TV commercials and now owning his own videotape production service. In the wake of a trio of commercial failures, something clicked, and Romero ended up bringing Rubinstein into the company. Even though neither one was really interested in sports, their first mutual effort was the sports documentary series The Winners, profiling the likes of baseballer Willie Stargell, running back Franco Harris, and NFL MVP O.J. Simpson. The series was produced on spec and was bought by ABC. Centered in Pittsburgh, the independent Laurel continued to operate away from the mainstream film production meccas of New York or Los Angeles, which fit their scrappy, lean-and-mean production style. Laurel went on to produce several notable horror films with Romero directing, providing a unique spin on the vampire genre with Martin in 1977, revisiting zombies in Dawn of the Dead 1978 and Day of the Dead from 1985, but most influentially for our discussion here, Creepshow in 1982.
1: Coming soon. (laughs) Jolting Tales of Horror Creep Show. From the author of Carrie, The Shining, and Cujo. the creator of night of the living dead and dawn of the dead you'll scream at ghastly ghouls cringe at weird kids and shiver at the doings of evil doctors creep show will grab you grow on you and give you the creeps creep show The most fun you'll ever have being scared.
0: Similar to 1972's Tales from the Crypt from the UK's Amicus Productions, Creepshow told five grisly tales in its two-hour runtime, in the style of the 1950s EC horror comics published by William Gaines. The film was bookended by a story about a young boy getting in trouble for reading the Creepshow comic book, which served as a framing device for the story vignettes. The film was written by Stephen King and featured familiar faces such as Hal Holbrook, Leslie Nielsen, Adrian Barbeau, Fritz Weaver, Ed Harris, E.G. Marshall, Ted Danson, and King himself in a memorable segment. As you can tell by the trailer, the film didn't take itself too seriously, and really leaned into its comic book origins with animated elements in the opening sequence and story transitions. Creepshow enjoyed a wide release, ranking number one at the U.S. box office its opening weekend. Following the success of Creepshow, Laurel pursued developing the concept into an anthology horror TV series. Evidently not able to use the title or the stylized visual elements of the film due to Wright's murkiness with co-producer United Film Distribution Company and distributor Warner Brothers, a new property was born, titled Tales from the Dark Side. Man
1: lives in the sunlit world of what he believes to be reality. But there is, unseen by most, an underworld, a place that is just as real but not as brightly lit, a dark side.
0: Working with TV producer Jerry Golod, an anthology format similar to that of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, The Twilight Zone, and Night Gallery, was used to tell self-contained stories. But unlike those well-known examples, the new series would have no host or framing device to introduce episodes. The budget would be a low $124,000 per episode and split production between studios in New York and L.A. However, the show would eschew the TV networks for a different distribution approach. Tales from the Dark Side premiered in 1984, when there were relatively little first-run scripted syndicated shows that weren't afternoon cartoons being distributed. So we're clear on our terms, syndication is when TV programs are sold directly to local stations to air, as opposed to being aired by a TV network. The local station could be a TV network affiliate or an independent, and the typical fare distributed in syndication at the time were reruns of old network shows, game shows, afternoon talk shows, news magazines like Entertainment Tonight, or variety shows like Soul Train and Solid Gold. Older movies were also offered as part of syndication packages, which is why a local TV market might have an independent station running 1979's Love at First Bite on a Thursday night opposite the network offerings of Cheers, Simon & Simon, or whatever movie ABC was running. Often the work of a high-profile writer would be used for dark-side episodes. Robert Block, David Gerald, Harlan Ellison, Clive Barker, Stephen King, and Romero himself would all write episodes or have their stories adapted. Stories themselves ranged from the comedic to the ghastly, incorporating elements of fantasy, sci-fi, or outright horror and the best ones contained an ironic plot twist or a character receiving their comeuppance in a grisly fashion. By 1988, the show was in its fourth and final season and seen on stations in 125 TV markets. Ninety episodes meant the show could now be sold into traditional rerun strip syndication, airing five nights a week on local stations and it was also sold internationally to air in 25 countries. During Darkside's run, other anthology series surfaced, focusing on suspense and fantasy. CBS had moved forward with a revival of The Twilight Zone under executive producer Phil Deguerre, creator of Simon and & Simon and WizKids. NBC had revived Alfred Hitchcock Presents and offered Steven Spielberg's Amazing Stories, invoking the title of the legendary Pulp magazine. However, these expensive primetime network shows largely reaped disappointing ratings, while Tales from the Dark Side often received high ratings in local markets when aired in the appropriate late-night time slot. While continuing to develop films such as Creepshow 2 and Pet Cemetery, Laurel looked to expand their TV offerings and went forward with a pair of pilots that could be their next anthology success. Moment of Fear would downplay the supernatural and present more people-to-people confrontations like the old Hitchcock shows. The erotic Night Rose had its pilot bought by HBO, But a series was nixed when execs thought it too pornographic, according to director John Harrison. With neither of these pilots going anywhere, the choice was made to return to what Laurel knew best, and a sizzle reel showcasing their makeup and creature effects from projects like Creepshow and Tales from the Dark Side was created, as related by Richard P. Rubenstein in a 1989 UPI interview. We decided to put together a reel of all our makeup effects that we'd done as a company, just to show our capacity. When we looked at it, we thought, this is not a bad idea for an ongoing series. Darkside showrunner Mitchell Galen edited together this reel, which was presented to Tribune Entertainment, the broadcast syndication company that had distributed Darkside as well as a variety of programming, such as Geraldo and Siskel and Ebert's At The Movies. With the first-run syndication market now exploding, driven primarily by the success of Paramount's Star Trek The Next Generation debuting the prior year, a series based on the presentation reel was fast-tracked. By the end of 1988, you could watch first-run syndicated content all afternoon and into the evening. Much of it focused on the sci-fi, fantasy, horror genres. In San Antonio, Saturday afternoon was full with Superboy, My Secret Identity, TNT, The Monsters Today, War of the Worlds, Freddy's Nightmares, Friday the 13th, The Series, and the evening was capped off at 10 p.m. with Monsters.
1: Uh. Honey, it's family hour. There must be something on. Oh, wow! Candy Critters! Oh! Oh, great! It's Monsters, our favorite show. Shh, it's starting. <laughs>
0: Yes, Monsters premiered in first-run syndication in 78 TV markets on October 22, 1988, although a few stations jumped the gun and aired it on Friday night. That meta-opening gave us an idea of what we were in for. An opening shot of planet Earth soon zooms in on North America, then a population center, then a suburb, focusing on a typical Cape Cod-style home. Entering a traditional living room, complete with leather lounge chairs and braided wool oval area rug, a family is settling in after dinner for the evening's entertainment. But the father tosses the newspaper in exasperation at the limited choices for TV viewing. As mother rolls in the dessert tray, we realize she is a horned cyclops, as is her daughter, who excitedly digs into the corningware serving dish of candied critters. The camera then pans around to reveal the father is a literal couch potato, with a lumpy head and sprouted left hand, as the family realizes that Monsters, their favorite show, is starting. As the lights are turned out, the music winds down and the episode begins. The theme music then ends with what can only be interpreted as a laugh, as the show logo fills the screen, revealing that while what we're about to see may be creepy, it's also in good fun, and we shouldn't take things too seriously. That was the intent, as related by Rubenstein. A good monster is a mixture of fun and scare. We differentiate what we were doing from Friday the 13th and the Nightmare on Elm Street kinds of series. We are dealing with fantasy as opposed to realism. There are no psychotic killers running around killing 16-year-old camp counselors on our show. We are of the Brothers Grimm fairy tale school, of the school of things that go bump in the night, rather than what has been characterized as slice and dice. Still, some episodes were pretty grotesque and violent for American television. Taking a cue from Darkseid, in most markets, the show was aired after 10 or 11 p.m. Like other anthologies, each episode told a self-contained story, usually centered around a monster or supernatural creature. The monsters in the show ranged from the traditional vampires and werewolves to the unusual and bizarre, such as sentient plants, giant insects, and creatures that defy categorization. Later, we'll dig into behind-the-scenes of show production, structure, writing, effects, and the people involved in the making of your favorite show. Now, join me, if you dare, in having some fun running down the episodes of Monsters, briefly biting into each one, and I'll call out interesting guest actors, writers, and delicious tidbits as we come to them. It all started with Episode 1, The Fever Man. To save his dying daughter, a man visits an odd folk healer who literally fights the grotesque physical manifestations of human illness. The doctor that tags along to debunk the healer soon regrets this decision. Michelle Gornick, daughter of producer Michael Gornick, makes her TV debut. This was also writer Neil Stevens' first credit, who took over creative consultant position after Tom Allen's unexpected death during production of this first season. With makeup effects by Dick Smith. Holly's House. Kathy is the remote puppeteer and voice of Holly, a life-size robotic doll on a hit children's TV show. To no one's surprise, Holly comes to life with murderous consequences. Holly was performed by Michael Anderson. Holly's design was no doubt influenced by the Cabbage Patch Kids, 16-inch dolls with chubby faces, individual names and yarn hair that came with a birth certificate and adoption papers. The doll brand hit the big time in 1983 when there were toy store riots in the United States over high demand and at least a perceived limited supply. New York Honey The Blakes have an eccentric upstairs neighbor, a beekeeper who plays loud classical music. However, the honey his bees make is very addictive. And his girlfriend is, well... The Bee's Knees Creature Effects by John Dodds Starting with this episode, a credit dedicating the series to writer and creative consultant Tom Allen is shown at the conclusion of the credits. The Vampire Hunter Ernest Chariot is the world's foremost vampire hunter, but when protege Jack is taken prisoner by his longtime vampire enemy, it leads to a final bloody showdown, Between the Two Starring Robert Lansing Known for his roles of Gary Seven on Star Trek Lieutenant Curtis on Auto Man And many other roles in his 40 year career My Zombie Lover On the one night a year that the dead come back to life as zombies A pair of sitcom parents and their young son Head out for the yearly hunt While collegiate daughter Dottie stays home to study But when an old high school flame stops by, can the living and the dead have a real relationship? Tempest Bloodsoe stars in this Cosby Show-type horror spoof that takes a dark turn at the end. Zombie Makeup by John Dodds. Where's the rest of me? In a South American country, a mad scientist reveals to his wealthy benefactors just where their transplanted organs originated. A corpse kept in a sort of living death thanks to a secret formula. But when the entire vial is spilled into the IV tank, the corpse wants his organs back. Meatloaf stars in this bloody tale. Makeup effects by John Dodds. The Legacy A writer named Dale has found the makeup case of legendary deceased horror actor Fulton Pierce. While his girlfriend remains unimpressed, Dale begins to see Pierce's characters in the mirror of the case and soon learns Pierce's secret at a terrifying cost. Based on a story by Robert Bloch, John Dodds and Bill Basso recreate classic Lon Chaney film looks here, including London After Midnight, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and The Phantom of the Opera. Sleeping Dragon When a prehistoric capsule hatches a human-sized reptile, four scientists are trapped inside a university lab with it. While a snowstorm rages outside, they must find out how to stop it. Starring Russell Johnson and sci-fi actress Beth Toussaint. Creature effects by the Chiodo Brothers and Steve Patino. This one evokes shades of 1982's The Thing. Pool Sharks Two pool sharks, a man named Gabe and the seductive Natasha, play each other all night in a dive bar. But Natasha is a vampire who had killed his brother, and Gabe is prepared for her. Makeup Effects by Kevin Haney Pillow Talk Horror writer Miles keeps his bed, an ancient Lovecraftian monster, regularly fed with women he brings home in exchange for the psychic inspiration to write. But when one woman gets away, Miles pursues her, and discovers she is also a writer, who may be harboring her own secret. Featuring Mary Warrenoff, Creatures by Makeup and Effects Lab Inc., with Mechanicals by Steve Patino. Rouse Him Not A painter renting a country cottage is visited by a writer researching local superstitions. It turns out her basement has a demon sealed underneath the floor, and the writer is a warlock ready to battle it. Starring Alex Cord and Lorraine Newman. Director Mark Sjostrom designed his own creature for this episode, the first to be produced at the Los Angeles studios pool's gold. Construction workers digging underneath a building find a hidden cave with a treasure chest of gold. Unfortunately, the gold is guarded by a troll willing to kill to protect it. With Taxi's Jeff Conaway and actress and regular sci-fi stunt performer Debbie Lee Carrington as the troll. Creature by Greg Canham. Glim Glimm. In a town ravaged by an alien plague, two men and a little girl hole up in a library basement, with an alien creature making his base above. But just who is the monster in this Christmas-themed story? Featuring a pre-blossom Jenna Vonoy and Ken Walker as Glim. The episode had been intended to run in December, but due to the 1988 writer's strike, was delayed and did not air until the end of January. The series also seems to shift here as several episodes in a row have the humans being the real monsters of the story and not the creature of the week. Parents from Space A young girl has her life turned upside down, for the better, when rat-like aliens land on their house and take over the bodies of her abusive foster parents. Starring Frank Gorshin and Peggy Cass. Alien Creatures by Vincent Guastini. The Mother Instinct. A wheelchair-bound woman grows some unique melons in her greenhouse, the juice of which has regenerative properties. When her abusive, greedy son-in-law tries to get his hands on the secret, he is introduced to the other life forms living in the dirt. Creatures by John Dodds Their Divided Self A pair of famous conjoined brothers are visited on a dark and stormy night by a psychiatrist to help them work through their personal issues. However, he finds to his misfortune, there's only one thing they will agree on. Featuring Laverne and Shirley's David Lander Makeup Effects by Rick Lazzarini Taps Actress-dancer, Susie, wants to leave her possessive creative partner, Gary, resulting in his murder and dismemberment. A year later, Gary's severed leg, still in his red tap shoe, pays a visit to Susie. Shades of posed the telltale heart in this mildly gruesome tale. The Match Game Two teenage couples play a ghost storytelling game in an abandoned Victorian mansion. However, they are horrified when every detail of their story becomes true. Featuring Father Murphy's Byron Thames in a pre Beverly Hills 90210 Tory spelling. Creature by Alec Gillis. Rain Dance. A struggling treasure hunter and his vain wife think they've hit it big time when they buy an ancient statue from an indigenous woman but they find they've gotten more than they bargained for when they find their God of Death statue is named that for a reason. Featuring Kent McCord and Terry Copley, best remembered as Mickey from NBC's We Got It Made. Cocoon. An amnesiac woman recovering in the hospital from a car accident hires a detective to find out who she is. He brings his psychic girlfriend onto the case, who uncovers her true nature. Makeup Effects by Rick Lazzarini All in a Day's Work A single mother and practicing white witch is approached by a man being stalked by his doppelganger, a demonic double of himself. While out of the League of Magic she normally practices, she must conjure her own demon, to protect her son. With entertaining performances by Adrian Barbeau and Eddie Velez. Creature effects by Elaine Alexander and Kevin Brennan. Satan in the Suburbs. A writer and harried single mother has a handsome devil appear to her in her kitchen, wanting her to write his life story. In the process, she and her young son gain their own devilish powers. Featuring Chris Noth, Deborah Strang, and young Danny Gerard, later of Brooklyn Bridge. Creature Effects by Vincent Guastini. Mannequins of Horror. In a dystopian society, a former brilliant surgeon held in an asylum by the state spends his time creating perfect, anatomically correct clay figurines. When the asylum director takes away his clay figures, they have other plans. Based on a short story by Robert Block, which invokes themes explored in The Twilight Zone's The Obsolete Man, this episode gets away with a surprising bit of anatomic detail on the male clay figurines sculpted by Dan Platt with excellent stop-motion work by Justin Cohn in Fantasy II Film Effects. La Strega A man accuses a dress shop owner of being a witch, believing she cursed his mother, causing her to die. But just what is the truth? And who really is La Strega, the witch? Linda Blair and Rob Morrow star in this Season 1 finale.
1: Forgotten TV will return in a moment. Want to go psycho with me, Elvira, you're at the Bates Motel? Look for me wherever they sell mug root beer. And enter the Go Psycho with Elvira contest. You can be my guest at Universal Studios in Hollywood for a monstrous bash at the Bates Motel. Shower anyone? This Halloween goes psycho with Elvira and win a party with Mug Root Beer and me. I love my mug. I love it. Nasty weather got the little monsters uptight. Make it a blockbuster night. Blockbuster has something for everyone. Even the fussiest little beasts settle down to enjoy Blockbuster. I just love a family night. If the weather's a fright, make it a Blockbuster night.
0: Season 2, The Face. Redneck brothers Cliff and Ray burgle an old lady's house late at night, killing the homeowner in a struggle but she's left behind a very unique wound on Ray's hand, much to his dismay. Starring Imogene Coca with makeup effects by John Dodds. Portrait of the Artist Private investigator Roger visits an art gallery containing weird three-dimensional sculptures of missing people, as if they were emerging from the wall hangings. It soon becomes clear that the sculptures are more than they seem. But who, or what, is the artist? Starring Darren McGavin. 3D sculptures by R.S. Cole and effects by John Dodds. A Bond of Silk. A pair of Texas newlyweds arrive to a bargain honeymoon suite, where they find a giant web instead of a bed. When the groom becomes trapped, The Bride tries to free him before they meet the web's creator. With Mark McClure Creature effects team Dale Brady, Bill Bryan, Pat Brady, and Mike Giamarco Stop motion effects by Justin Cohn Rerun College student Allison is obsessed with deceased movie star Tony Sterling, completely ignoring Max, who has feelings for her. But when Tony shows up in her dorm room, Max has to help Allison see Tony for what he truly is. This was the first credit of Rachel Bay Jones, later of God Friended Me, The Good Doctor, and Young Sheldon. Creature Effects by Richard Alonzo. Love Hurts Married DMV clerk Vance routinely hits on the customers, with his efforts continually blocked by his father-in-law. However, Vance's latest fling jewel is a student of voodoo, meaning extreme danger for all involved. Directed by Manny Cotto. Effects by Steve Johnson. The Farmer's Daughter. Aging Bible salesman Howard Philby is stranded at a farmhouse, and Ma and Pa let him sleep upstairs with their daughter with a privacy sheet between them, mind you. But when the sheet comes down, what kind of fate awaits the naughty Philby? The first of three episodes directed by actor Michael Warren Powell. Soupy sales and old indie actor George Hall star in this monster's take on an age-old joke. Makeup effects by Paul C. Riley. Jar. P.I. Jack shows up at a country inn looking for a missing woman but finds the beautiful Anne instead. There's a mutual attraction, but Anne is attached, for now, to her wealthy, ailing husband. However, the innkeeper has a mason jar that contains the solution for that. Fritz Weaver and Gina Gershon star in this steamy, noir tale. Jar Creature by John Dodds The Demons A witchcraft-practicing alien tries to summon a demon but conjures up Chicago businessman Arthur instead, who is forced to play along. But to fulfill the alien's request, Arthur has to figure out how to summon a demon of his own. Richard Maul and Eddie Deason star in this comedic story directed by Scott Alexander, screenwriter of Ed Wood, The People vs. Larry Flint, and Man on the Moon. Makeup Effects by Michael Burnett and Colin Penman Reaper An ailing old man finds death comes to visit on his very first night at a nursing home and makes a deal to not be taken. But having to deliver three more souls to the Grim Reaper, he may find someone else has made their own deal. With Barbara Billingsley Based on a story by Robert Block with Grim Reaper effects by Rick Lazzarini. The Mandrake Root Cleaning out her deceased grandmother's home, frustrated wife Angela finds a magical root plant in the cellar that transforms itself into a hunky stud, eager to please her. But of course, there's a catch, which her husband will soon find out about. Creature effects by Oscar winner Kevin Haney half as old as time. Dying old Dr. Minor visits his archaeologist daughter to find the location of a secret Native American fountain of youth guarded over by the snake god of forever. But when he drinks of its waters, he finds the snake god will require something in return. Starring Leif Garrett, Old Age Effects by Steve Johnson. Museum Hearts A young man, his girlfriend, and her rival are locked overnight in a museum with a crate that contains the ancient corpse of a druid priestess. When the man has a minor injury, his blood reanimates the priestess, intent on resurrecting her sensual female cult. Effects Makeup by John Dodds Habitat A young woman agrees to participate in a nine-month alien experiment in solitary confinement to the risk of her own sanity. Written by David Morrill, author of the novel First Blood and creator of John Rambo. Alien Effects by John Bisson Bed and Bore Salesman John is stuck in a terrible motel adjacent to a room with a constant domestic disturbance. But when the woman from next door seeks refuge in his room, John finds her husband is a male chauvinist pig, in more ways than one. Featuring Steve Buscemi, Pig Makeup by Vincent Guastini, Mr. Slobber, a put-upon dinosaur-loving boy with a loathsome family finds a wonderful toy in his box of breakfast cereal that grows into Mr. Slobber, a friendly amphibious creature who has plans for mom and sis. With Robert Oliveri of the Honey I Shrunk the Kids films, creature created by Vincent Guastini, Perchance to Dream, a college student with a head injury suffers from sleep deprivation, and finds his dreams have entered the real world, endangering himself and others. He is advised that to stop it, he must enter the dream world and face his unconscious self. Featuring Raphael Sabarge, later of The Guardian and Once Upon a Time. FX work and video graphics by Boyington Productions. One Wolf's Family. A middle-aged werewolf couple learn their daughter's fiance is a weir hyena, meaning a mixed marriage. Meanwhile, the nosy and racist next-door neighbor is too curious for her own good. Jerry Stiller and Mira and Amy Stiller star in this sitcom-style story, written by Paul Deeney. Creature makeup and prop effects by Paul Riley and Chris Bingham. Some thought was given to spinning this story off into its own series. The Offering A young man recovering in the hospital from a concussion begins to see hideous, extra-dimensional creatures seemingly feeding on cancer patients. To save his own mother, he must take drastic action. Orson Bean stars in this extremely gross tale. Creature Effects by Michael Burnett. Far below. An auditor investigating the budget requests for a subway maintenance crew discovers they serve as pest control for a race of subterranean creatures living in the tunnels that feed on human flesh. Starring Barry Nelson, best known for the 50s series My Favorite Husband. Directed by Deborah Hill, writer of the Halloween films. Based on a story by Robert Barber Johnson. Creature Effects by the KMB EFX Group. Microminds. Professor Becker receives a signal over his giant radio antenna. Not from outer space, but from intelligent microscopic life living in the antenna's cooling tank. But what happens when they think Professor Becker is their god? With Troy Donahue. Directed by Monsters West Coast producer Anthony Santa Croce. Creature effects by Steve Johnson. Refugee. A former U.S. spy who studies the occult as a hobby is brought out of retirement to track down a defecting Soviet scientist, whose pursuers turn out to be demons. The first of three episodes written by Haskell Barkin, who used to write a lot of Saturday morning cartoons, and four episodes of CBS's Twilight Zone reboot. Makeup effects by Todd Masters. The Gift. Young Jeffrey is held hostage by a pair of criminals in a remote cabin and locked in the cellar with a chained telepathic man-beast. Trapped together, a friendship is struck, but they must decide what to do when they learn they will both be killed. With Abe Vigoda, six foot two dancer Carlos Lauchu in makeup as The Beast, and John Bulger doing voiceover. Jeffrey was played by Zach Overton. Creature effects by John Dodds. According to Fangoria, this was the first second season episode filmed. Overton, a child actor from the age of 5 to 13 in the 1980s, recalled Abe Vigoda to be a very nice, seasoned professional, telling Forgotten TV, But this was later in his career, and he did struggle to remember his lines. I do happen to remember multiple takes where he said, Go get some stove for the coal, instead of coal for the stove. He also noted John Bolger was on set for key scenes, reading his lines off-camera. As he was used to performing live in front of an audience, he found the non-linear order of scene filming for monsters to be jarring, and added, The final shot of me with the tears running down my face was the final thing we shot, and felt a bit of an afterthought, very rushed. So while I did cry in the other dramatic moment of the episode, they used fake tears for that last shot, so we could quickly get the take and wrap. Overton also appeared in episodes of Saturday Night Live, Kate and Alley, and The Late Show with David Letterman. The Bargain Plain-looking bookstore clerk Sarah calls a beauty ad in a 70-year-old magazine, and a mysterious woman shows up with a mask she can wear as her new face. But, of course, everything comes at a price. And these things always have a catch, as Sarah soon finds out. This was the writing and directing debut of Tom Noonan, who you might remember as Frankenstein's monster on The Monster Squad. Makeup by John Dodds. The Family Man Mom has a new boyfriend, But only 10-year-old Neil can see him for what he really is through his deceased dad's glasses. A reptilian, emotional vampire who has fed off of other lonely single mothers. Creature by John Dodds The plot point where characters can see creatures posing as humans using special glasses was seen in the film They Live from late 1988, about a year and a half before This episode aired. Forgotten TV
1: will continue in a moment. Welcome to the world of terror. When I'm not busy embalming bodies, which isn't often, I like to relax with some good family reading. Let me introduce you to my personal library of Fangoria, the leader in horror entertainment. What a fascinatingly hideous cover of Freddy Krueger. And devilishly candid reviews of the latest horror videos. And gloriously bloody color photos from the newest Friday the 13th. They're all here in Van Goria. Can I persuade you to subscribe? Justice! Ah, let the dead bodies wait. Hi, I'm a Boglin. Me and my buddies want to be your friend, right, guys? Right. Right. Call us at 1-900-909-5464. And hear how we can protect you from ferocious beasts And help your teacher grade your math test. Yeah, a new story every day. One call gets you a 3-D Boglin hologram like this. Four calls get you a set of six. Trade them with your buddies. And part of your $2.35 two-minute call goes to Special Olympics. So get your parents' permission and call us at 1-900-909-5464. Go get the phone. He said, Get it, not eat
0: it. Season 3 Stressed Environment A female scientist has spent 12 years breeding a species of intelligent rats. However, she finds they have evolved enough to develop tools and weapons and organize to defeat their captors. Another season premiere, written by Neal Stevens, featuring A surprising amount of sightal nudity at the beginning, blurred by some TV stations. With Carol Lindley, stop-motion effects by John Dodds. Murray's Monster A blowhard psychiatrist who feels suffocated by his wife discovers he can hypnotize neurotic patient Murray into manifesting his repressed anger. Things take a surprising turn when he tries to arrange Murray's monster to rid himself of his wife. Featuring Joe Flaherty, Teresa Ganzel, and Marvin Kaplan in this comedic farce. Creature Effects by Michael Burnett, performed by makeup artist Colin Penman. Bug House Ellen has car trouble and stays with her very pregnant sister in her childhood home, now infested with roaches, as well as her sister's boyfriend, Peter, who has a sexual power over women. Both women discover the horrifying truth about Peter far too late. With thoroughly disgusting creature and makeup effects by Vincent Guastini and Joe Mechia. Cellmates. An obnoxious wealthy American runs over a boy and is thrown in a South American jail into... The bad cell, reserved for the worst offenders, which all prisoners disappear from. He soon finds why, when he sees what his next-door cellmate transforms into. Makeup Effects by Brian, Geoia, and Melanie Moore Outpost Hundreds of years in the future, a brain-wiped, bioengineered criminal sentenced to work a mining outpost in distant space is visited by a female inspector to find out why his quotas aren't being met. Although the story ends with a tropey twist, it's one that caught me off guard. With Juliet Mills, Creature Makeup by Steve Johnson and Bill Corso. The whole. Three GIs exploring enemy tunnels in Vietnam discover a bunker with a soul-dying survivor that warns them of what resides in the tunnels. Trying to find their way out, they find the tunnels won't let them leave. With Ahmad Rashad, Great Zombies by Paul Riley, Chris Bingham, and Seth Wolfson. Small Blessing A suburban couple are parents to a 36-pound, fanged, carnivorous mutant who eats raw meat and climbs the walls and drives Mommy ragged. He comes in handy, though, when the neighborhood delivery boy turns out to be a sociopathic serial killer. With MTV's Julie Brown, Peggy Ray, Kevin Nealon, and a very early appearance by David Spade. Creature by Michael Burnett. Shave and a haircut. Two Bites, a teenage boy tries to convince his friend that the barbershop across the street is a den of vampires. Breaking into the barbershop, they don't find vampires, but something just as evil. Written by Dan Simmons, a prolific novelist, known for the Hyperion Cantos and Seasons of Horror series, with Will Wheaton and Matt LeBlanc, creature By Michael Burnett. Here, LeBlanc was the Hollywood newcomer and Wheaton the acting veteran with a decade of work under his belt. The two became friends during filming, finding they both liked Monty Python, MST3K, and the Zucker Brothers. During filming, LeBlanc turned Wheaton onto a new show called The Simpsons. The two tried to stay in touch, but their lives took them in different directions. In a few years, Wheaton turned on the TV to find LeBlanc had been cast in Friends, one of the most popular sitcoms of all time. The Young and the Headless Victoria is surprised when her hunk of a former husband, thought dead, returns after years in the jungle. However, her current husband, a wheelchair-bound mad surgeon, turns him into a headless, remote-controlled automaton. Karen Valentine stars in this soap opera-like adaptation of an 1887 short story by W.C. Morrow. Makeup and special effects by John Dodds, Jay Kushwara, and Mark Alfrey. However, the headless effects produced on video visibly clash with Monster's 16mm format. The episode music is a take on Cotton's Dream, from Bless the Beasts and Children, later known as the theme to daytime drama, The Young and the Restless. The Waiting Game Isolated missile technicians in various bunkers are on their own after a nuclear war wipes out humanity. Over the coming days, they realize that the outside world has been taken over by the undead, who now have all the time in the world. Writer John Fox was clearly inspired by 1983's War Games, with some dialogue from the opening five-minute segment almost exactly the same as the beginning of that film. Vampire Makeup by KNB EFX Group. Sop, A skeptical reporter investigates the claims of Southern preacher Brother Roy, who will extract your sins for a price? Hold the dead hand of the world's evilest man, and your sins are converted into a physical slime, ejected into a bathtub, which gives female sinners a hysterical paroxysm in the process. The sexual innuendo was off the charts in this very weird episode. Combining the modern legend of late 19th century doctors treating female hysteria and the ancient folk ritual of the Sin Eater. Makeup Effects by Richard Alonzo. Seventeen slime bladders were used on actor Robert Valenzi, and word is that much of the slime effects was edited from the final episode. A New Woman Gold digger Jessica can't wait for her ailing sugar daddy to croak to get her hands on his money and company. Her first act will be to raise a homeless shelter to put up a high rise. But not if the Christmas zombies have anything to say about it. This monster's version of A Christmas Carol featured Linda Thorson from The Avengers and Mason Adams, well known for Lou Grant and The Smucker's Ad's. Zombie Makeup Effects by Paul C. Riley. Malcolm A middle-aged clarinetist has a slug-like parasitic creature removed from his abdomen, but finds it was what once gave him his musical abilities. A very unusual entry by writer-director Tom Noonan, who even provided the clarinet music used. With longtime character actors Ed Lauder Carol Shelley, and Farley Granger. Creature Effects by Vincent Guastini. Household Gods Modern wife and new mother Deborah tries to juggle career, family, and domestic life. But this displeases her household god who sabotages her efforts. However, barefoot and pregnant Laura from next door, as well as her own mother-in-law, soon educate her in the proper order of things. Too Close for Comfort's Deborah Van Valkenburg stars and the diminutive Michael Anderson returns as the household god. Makeup Effects by John Dodds The Space Eaters The evening of two proper chess-playing gentlemen is interrupted by an invading alien in the shape of a giant eyeball. The pair must spend the rest of their night avoiding the alien's attempts to take over their brains. This 50s pulp-style story was directed by Robert T. Megginson, co-writer of 1986's FX. Creature Effects by John Bisson The Waiting Room A widower brings his newlywed son and his wife to a mountain hotel with an ulterior motive to sacrifice his son to the phantom woman he cheated on his wife with on their honeymoon 20 years earlier. Starring John Saxon and Christian LeBlanc from The Young and the Restless. The Barely Seen Creature by KNB EFX Group. Leavings A pair of beat cops have encounters with numerous people with various body parts missing, but no traditional signs of amputation. When they report this to the inspector, they discover he's running a house of horrors in the basement of the precinct. With Clifton James, the Popcorn Kids' John Christopher Jones, Tony Shalhoub, and John Bloom, who played the Frankenstein monster on 1971's Dracula vs. Frankenstein. Jake Kushwara, Ken Brilliant, and Michael DeFeo deliver a very creative creature here. Desirable Alien A female hard-case INS agent investigates a pair of immigrants working at a Greek restaurant. But can she resist the supernatural charms of Hercules Vavilotus, a genuine satyr? With Wendy Makina, later of Sister Act and Oliver Bean, Luis Guzman and Blondie's Debbie Harry as a lusty nurse. Creature by Paul Riley and Billy Messina A face for radio. Radio talk show host Ray Bright regularly ridicules paranormal guests until the sexy Amanda visits his studio. But Amanda has brought proof in the form of a tiny alien creature in a cage that claims Amanda is really the one to be feared. Written and directed by Bruce Fierstein, who went on to pen GoldenEye, Tomorrow Never Dies, and The World Is Not Enough, with surprisingly entertaining performances by 80s big mouth Morton Downey Jr., his wife Lori Krebs, pop star Laura Branigan, 50s actress Julie Wilson, and the voice of Rick Wessler. This one gives off heavy Midnight Caller vibes, and the creature, designed by John Bisson and Ken Walker, made it on the Season 3 DVD cover. WEREWOLF OF HOLLYWOOD Low-budget Hollywood screenwriter Buzz is told to write a very specific script about a studio executive that is a hereditary werewolf. But when the producer pitching the story turns up dead, it turns out that truth is stranger than fiction. Prolific novelist Ron Goulart penned this satire on the film industry. With Richard Belzer and character actor Shelley Berman, who had appeared on The Twilight Zone and Beware the Blob. Creature Effects by Vincent Guastini Talk nice to me. A player that juggles multiple women over the phone is the recipient of some interesting calls from a mysterious stalker that seems to know everything about him. When he demands to see her in person... He ends up regretting it. Written by Paul Dini, featuring Ed Marinaro from Hill Street Blues, Terry Ann Lynn from The Bold and the Beautiful, and Tina Louise as the voice of the mysterious woman. Creature effects by Steve Johnson. Hostile Takeover A Wall Street Raider takes voodoo economics quite literally and has been getting stock tips directly from a voodoo priestess to make it big on the stock market. After a year, however, the ride is over, and it's time for him to be taken over. By the Devil. With Dennis Christopher from Profiler, Tracy Walter, William Lanteau from Newhart, and Pam Greer. Creature Effects by the Chiodo Brothers. The Maker. Newly homeless Mac takes up sleeping in an abandoned hotel, where he meets J.J., an inebriated vagrant who can conjure anything out of thin air. But his conjurings are quite defective. When Mac takes away the booze, J.J.'s creations become nightmarish. Vaudeville and 40s film actor Eddie Bracken stars in this final episode from the original airings. Creature Effects by Steve Johnson The Moving Finger Nebbish accountant and TV addict Howie is startled by an absurdly long, disembodied finger sticking up through the bathroom sink drain. When his wife never sees it, he begins to question his sanity and takes extreme measures to deal with the finger. From a story by Stephen King with Tom Noonan and Alice Platon from The Lost Saucer. Finger effects by John Dodds, Ken Walker, and Greg Ramundas. Contrary to air dates quoted online, this episode didn't air during Monsters' original run, and possibly wasn't seen until the Sci-Fi Channel reruns in the 90s. Was it too bloody for broadcast TV? You'll need to watch it and decide.
1: Forgotten TV will return in a moment. There's a new series coming to television. If you don't watch it, you could be made There are worlds inside our minds, worlds of peace and beauty. But when our minds wander too far, we lose control and enter the dark, deadly world of Freddy Krueger, where nightmares come alive. Experience this world every week on Freddy's new television series, A Nightmare on Elm Street, the series Freddy's Nightmares. Don't let him catch you sleeping. (laughs) Behind scenes.
0: Horror thriller anthologies already had a robust broadcast history long before Monsters 1988 debut. Everyone can point to Rod Serling's The Twilight Zone, originally running on CBS from 1959 to 1964, which has enjoyed a life of near-continual reruns since. But also premiering in 1959 was ABC's One Step Beyond. Hosted and directed by John Newland.
1: The amazing drama you're about to see is a matter of human record. You may believe it or not, but the real people who lived this story, they believe it. They know. They took that one step beyond. Beyond.
0: This perhaps less remembered anthology ran for three seasons and 97 episodes, exploring supposedly true tales often revolving around paranormal events. In 1960, Boris Karloff's thriller debuted on NBC, originally as a crime suspense drama, before shifting to tales of gothic horror. Episodes would begin with a cold open before Karloff would appear to introduce the story and its players, often concluding with...
1: Let me assure you, my friends, this is a thriller.
0: Thriller ran for two seasons and 67 episodes, and has also been rerun even in recent years on MeTV. However, there's an anthology from this era you may not have heard of. CBS's Way Out presented horror, fantasy, and sci-fi stories for just 14 weeks in early 1961. Host Ruold Dahl would dryly introduce episodes with a lit cigarette in front of a hall of mirrors video effect. Somewhat appropriately, the show's sponsor was Tobacco Company L&M. Yes, this was the same Ruald Dahl that wrote James and the Giant Peach and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. However, he was also a prolific writer of macabre adult short stories, widely published in top American periodicals. Producer David Susskind envisioned a weekly series in the style of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, with Dahl as host, and sold CBS on the idea or rather, sold l m tobacco on bankrolling the show, as was done at the time. The show was videotaped at CBS's Manhattan Studios and echoed the tales printed in EC Comics the prior decade. Much like the response to those comic books, Way Out received harsh criticism even before it premiered. With one viewer irritated it would replace The Jackie Gleason Show in the time slot. Warning parents about the initial episode, one of Dahl's own short stories. See that your children are not near Channel 2 between 8.30 and 9.00 p.m. on Friday, March 31st, or on any succeeding Friday, until good taste and common sense. Return to CBS TV. Although the show did receive some critical acclaim, Variety also called it a wild orgy of nightmarish imagery. Television is hardly ready for this kind of grisly business. Another common criticism of the show was that it offered its macabre tales without parable, social commentary, or justice being served via any traditional method. Indeed, the story seemed pretty wild for 1961 television. That first episode, William and Mary, had a dying man's brain removed and kept alive in a tank, a single eyeball afloat in the fluid. His previously browbeaten wife then takes delight in his now speechless situation, blowing cigarette smoke into his eye. Presumably L&M's. Soft focus featured a photographer who could touch up photos with special chemicals the same results of which would come true on the faces of the photographed people. When his wife intentionally spills it on his photo, it erases half his face in a reveal that shocked viewers at the time. Starting with the 11th episode, some network affiliates even began to drop way out, citing the excessive horror involved in episodes. That installment hush-hush, depicted a behavior-modified wife, all too happy to permanently silence noisy pets and neighbors. After this, CBS started allowing affiliate stations to preview episodes over a closed-circuit feed. Episodes, in fact, all too often dealt with a man using a plot device to deal with an overbearing wife. Episode 9, Death Wish, had a voiceover claim outright, most men want to kill their wives then proceeds to tell a tale about a funeral home that seems to provide just such a service in episode 12 sideshow a man leaves his nagging wife for a headless woman in a carnival sideshow who appears to have a light bulb installed on her neck in the final installment of way out 2020 a timid encyclopedia salesman seeks to use a rather unorthodox hitman service to rid himself of his shrew of a wife. This one featured several story elements later seen in episodes of Monsters. However, one wonders what was on the mind of showrunner Jacqueline Babin, who selected stories for the series. Special effects makeup was done by one Dick Smith, whose work is often credited as one of the highlights of the series. Smith's makeup effects on Way Out ended up inspiring youngsters to pursue the same line of work. This included 8-year-old William Malone, who as an adult recalled, I think I saw an ad for the new Way Out series, which would air just before The Twilight Zone. We had poor reception from the station that aired the program, and the picture was often fuzzy. This somehow made the show creepier than it was. The images were ghostly, Dick Smith's makeup on the false face, and soft focus episodes were great. They inspired me to take an interest in horror makeup. Malone's interest led him to work for Don Post Studios designing the infamous William Shatner mask, later used for Michael Myers in Halloween, and working in makeup effects for 1973's The Norless Tapes. He later directed episodes of Freddy's Nightmares, HBO's Tales from the Crypt, and 1999's House on Haunted Hill legendary makeup artist Rick Baker also credits Smith for an early interest in the field, saying in 2009, It was the soft focus episode of Way Out I saw when I was 10 years old in 1961. It scared the bejesus out of me. I always loved getting my Famous Monsters magazine, and I opened up the inside cover, and there was a photograph of that guy with a part of his face missing. Flat like that, with this look of horror on his face. It was disturbing. I thought this guy was a good actor. When I read the article, I realized that the part of his face that was still human was in fact not the actor at all. That expression of horror was a sculpture by Dick Smith. From that moment on, I became obsessed with this man, Dick Smith. With Way Out becoming problematic with affiliates, CBS exercised their cancellation option and ended the show after 14 weeks. David Susskind immediately went on to produce the very similar Great Ghost Tales on NBC, using story ideas originally conceived for Way Out. But this series only lasted 12 weeks. Ruol Dahl ended up hosting the UK anthology Tales of the Unexpected, 18 years later, which adapted more of his stories for the small screen. Due to its short run and production method, the episodes produced on videotape with closing credits superimposed over the live broadcast, Way Out was never rerun and went largely forgotten by the mainstream public. TV enthusiasts would recall episode plots and falsely attribute them to The Twilight Zone or The Outer Limits, and many would confuse episodes of those series as well. As information on it was scarce, magazines would sometimes print articles that left something to be desired in terms of accuracy. Finally, in 1986, authors Gary D. Joseph and Martin H. Friedenthal interviewed both Dahl and Suskind, and put out accurate articles and a full episode guide, published in the Twilight Zone magazine. These were later republished in Film Facts and served to rekindle online interest in the series. Kinescopes of the broadcast of Way Out were made in studio and preserved by David Suskind. Eventually, these were transferred to videotape and donated to New York's Museum of Broadcasting. In 2016, most of these were anonymously posted to YouTube, complete with original commercials and voiceovers, providing a very rare snapshot of raw 1961 television. But let's fast forward to 1988 and continue our discussion on Monsters. Laurel Entertainment, desiring to produce a follow-up series to their Tales from the Dark Side, ending its run in July 1988, sold distributor Tribune Entertainment on the concept of producing a similar horror anthology series, focusing on creatures, makeup, and special effects. 72 total episodes of Monsters were produced, with new episodes airing up to April 1991. Following the production structure established for Tales from the Dark Side, episodes of Monsters were shot on sound stages at Astoria Studios in New York and Hollywood Stage Studios in Los Angeles, with fourteen to fifteen produced in New York and nine to ten produced in L.A. each season. The budget for Monsters was about $200,000 per episode, about half of what it cost to produce a half hour network show at the time. Episodes were produced according to a very consistent formula to keep both this budget and the number of shooting days required under control. Plots featured one to two lead characters, one to three supporting characters, one monster, one or two interiors, and no exterior location shots. Episodes were written to be filmed in four days. You'll also note episodes had a three-act story structure with a 5 eight, 8 minute breakdown to fill 21 minutes before the opening and closing credits. Although when the series started, it was picked up by 78 local TV stations. In just five weeks' time, Laurel took out ads in the trade magazines, proclaiming a 55% growth in local TV ratings, succeeding in late-night time slots in markets such as Chicago and Richmond, Virginia, where it aired on Fox 35 on Saturday nights in a programming block with Freddy's Nightmares, Star Trek The Next Generation, and the revived Twilight Zone, now in syndication. By its second season, monsters had been picked up by 130 TV stations. This included New York's WPIX and Chicago's WGN, carried on many cable networks. So if you had cable and a local station carried it, there was a good chance you could catch monsters in your local market even two or three times over the weekend. With the production cranking out 24 episode seasons, many writers and directors were employed over the course of the show, and it will be impossible to mention all of them in this podcast. But let's look at about... 15 behind-the-scenes people that made monsters work. We've talked about Richard P. Rubenstein, George Romero's business partner in Laurel Entertainment. And yes, there were several business entities they operated under. Laurel Productions of Pennsylvania, Laurel Tape and Film, Laurel Group. For simplicity, all included under the umbrella term of Laurel Entertainment here. The corporation was named after the official state flower of Pennsylvania, the Mountain Laurel, a wildflower native to the eastern U.S. It was Rubinstein's business acumen that enabled the transformation of Romero's latent image, technically a different company, into a leaner, more fiscally responsible outfit. His choice to produce a full series of the television sports documentaries, the winners, didn't come out of any particular interest in the subject matter, but was the result of an investment scheme where the very subjects of the episodes financed the production. In 1982, Laurel, as well as sports stars Willie Stargell, Franco Harris, Elsie Greenwood, and a list of Pittsburgh's Who's Who, were the subject of IRS investigations when they started cracking down on investment arrangements commonly called tax shelters. In these arrangements, the investor generally would benefit more from their reduced tax obligations than any traditional return on the invested funds, while the film producers would obtain more funds from investors than any likely return from box office or TV sales. Such arrangements were common in the movie industry in the 1970s, before the IRS closed the loophole allowing them. Laurel was cited by the press as being at the center of most of the tax court cases. In a front-page Pittsburgh Press article, Rubinstein, with Laurel foreign distribution agent Irvin Shapiro, leveraged the emerging international cult status of Night of the Living Dead entering an arrangement with Italian horror auteur, Dario Argento, to finance half of a sequel in return for international distribution rights. In September 1978, Zombie was released in Italy, while a different cut of the film premiered in the US in April 1979 as Dawn of the Dead. Certain it would receive an X rating from the MPAA ratings board, Rubinstein turned down offers from bigger studios that would distribute a cut R-rated version and sought a film distributor that would release it unrated. As he noted at the time, no major company will release a film with an X rating. The flaw in the rating system is that X carries the connotation of sex. There is no sex in Dawn of the Dead. Not even a kiss. As I extensively detailed in Forgotten TV Supplemental 12, the MPAA's intentional decision to not copyright the X rating resulted in it being hijacked by the porn industry. So, in an early example of a film studio circumventing the MPAA altogether, Laurel partnered with United Film Distribution Company, and Dawn of the Dead was released without an NPAA seal, but included the following notice in advertisements and one-sheets. There is no explicit sex in this picture. However, there are scenes of violence which may be considered shocking. No one under 17 will be admitted. The risky strategy was successful, and the film, the budget of which was likely around $700,000, reported worldwide box office returns of twenty four million by late nineteen seventy nine. In nineteen eighty, Laurel Entertainment went public in an IPO, their prospectus listing a number of projects in development. Among them Knight Riders, Day of the Dead, Creep Show, and Stephen King's The Stand. With Romero and Rubinstein owning equal shares, constituting a majority ownership in the company. The pair was poised to take Laurel Entertainment into the 1980s. Joining Laurel in 1985 as Vice President of Production was Mitchell Galen. Galen's early days and late nights as a musician in a touring band led him to seek a different lifestyle. Wanting to enter the film business, Galen visited one talent agency after another until he lucked into a referral to the Fifi Oscar agency. His first job was assistant to Michael Learned on the TV series Nurse, produced in New York. He then jumped at the opportunity to assist producer Robert Halmy Sr., developing a string of TV movies, including recruiting Peter O'Toole, over a 3 a.m. phone call for the 1983 TV movie, Svingali. Starting with its second season, Galen oversaw production of Tales from the Dark Side, as well as the subsequent series, Monsters, and held a key creative decision-making role in Laurel Entertainment following the departure of George Romero in 1985. Tom Allen was a film critic and contributor to periodicals like the Soho Weekly News, The Village Voice, Film Comment, and perhaps most telling, the Long Island Catholic, in the 1970s. When John Carpenter's Halloween was faltering at the box office, a positive review by Allen in The Voice that joined Roger Ebert in praising the film was credited by Carpenter as the turning point in the film's success. Allen's reviews also gave positive consideration to filmmakers like John Waters and George Romero. We know Allen later joined Laurel and worked as a script coordinator and likely unofficial story editor on Tales from the Dark Side, and initially the same on Monsters. F. Paul Wilson, writer of Glim Glim, called him a big gentle fellow with an easy smile. Other than this, exceedingly little information is easily found about him, not even an obituary. This bugged writer Nick Pinkerton to the point of embarking on a research project in 2013 to track down those that knew him to find out just who Tom Allen was. And what he found was most surprising. For Tom Allen was Brother Allen with the Brothers of the Sacred Heart in Metuchen, New Jersey. Yes, a bona fide monk living at a rectory was the extremely well-versed film critic published in liberal alternative New York newspapers. At around age 14, he entered St. Joseph's Juniorate in 1952, along with best friend Joe Murphy, classmate since first grade, and the pair intended to join the Order of the Brothers of the Sacred Heart. At St. Joseph's, young Tommy and Joe grew horse corn near the vineyard. In the evening, Tommy watched movies broadcast on TV and kept index cards with details on cast and crew and his own comments. Movies could also be caught at the Forum Theater on Main Street, a half hour walk away. In 1957, Allen and Murphy were moved to the Jesuit Spring Hill College outside Mobile, Alabama. Riding the bus in the city, 19-year-old Allen, oblivious to the racism of the South, sat in the back of the bus behind a black man, outraging the whites on board. Returning to New York, Allen lived and taught at Bishop Riley Diocesan High School in Queens, again joined by Murphy, who recalled he was "...a very laid-back teacher. I never saw him irritated." Allen started a film society at Bishop Riley, regularly showing films in the auditorium after school. Students nicknamed him Spanky due to his smiling, cherubic face after the famous Little Rascals actor. Allen then moved into the graduate program at Columbia, where he took a screenwriting class given by Arthur Barron, who later wrote and directed 1973's Jeremy with young newcomer Robbie Benson. Allen also became a follower of film critic Andrew Saris, leading proponent of the auteur theory of film criticism. By the mid-70s, Allen was writing film reviews for Soho Weekly, and from there, The Village Voice, while living at the rectory in the South Bronx. Even though he was religious and politically conservative, he was also no prude. Reviewing the 1977 documentary, Word is Out!, he said it only begins to atone for a film heritage of virulent propaganda against gays. He noted the sexuality of both Sissy Spacek and Natasha Kinsky in reviews, even relating a dream he had about Kinsky to voice intern Kent Jones. Reviewing 1977's Desperate Living, he called John Waters a driven, integral stylist. He profiled both George Romero and Richard Rubinstein for the 1979 Village Voice article, Night of the Living Dead, spelled K-N-I-G-H-T. In the piece, Allen decried what he called the rise of the corporate movie in what was now the blockbuster age, while admiring the practices of the Laurel Crew, which would use profitable ventures to fund the films they really wanted to make. Allen noted Romero was redefining his own terms what it means to be a truly independent commercial filmmaker. Although he turned down appearing as Friar Tuck in Romero's Night Riders, having lost his reviewing position at the voice, he found himself part of the Laurel crew. Allen's reviews had often found flaws in story structure and pacing. Thus he was fittingly put in charge of coordinating the writing for tales from the dark side, working out of Laurel's New York offices. Sadly, his two carnal habits of chain-smoking extra-long more cigarettes and consuming junk food on the go caught up with him. One September morning, Brother Allen was not present at morning prayer. The brothers found that he had died in his room overnight at 50 years of age. He had passed during production of Monster's fourth episode, and a credit dedicating the series to him was placed at the end of every episode, starting with the third. The New York Film Critics Circle also recognized him with a special posthumous award. He was laid to rest at the Brothers Cemetery on the St. Joseph's campus behind the House of Studies, not far from where he and best friend Joe once grew horse corn. Neil Stevens began writing screenplays when he was 13 years old, as he explained to interviewer Brock Swinson last year. I have been writing for a long, long time, back before there were even screenwriting books. I think I bought an old Star Trek episode, which was totally inappropriate as a screenwriting guide. You could order screenplays back then, but they were written after the fact, so they were not at all useful. After graduating from NYU, he managed to get a meeting to pitch stories for a new series. I wrote up all these pitches for Monsters, and I had another idea that wasn't written down, but I was in there, so I pitched that idea. That was my first sale, and it turned out to be the premiere episode. Following Tom Allen's unexpected death, his position on Monsters was filled by Neil Stevens. A few years after Monsters, Stevens graduated to writing screenplays for Charles Band's Full Moon Entertainment and Pulse Pounders video labels, under the pseudonym Benjamin Carr. Zarkor the Invader, Head of the Family, Mystery Monsters, The Creeps, Johnny Misto Boy Wizard, and Talisman are some that you may remember sitting on the shelves of your local video store. In 2001, he was one of the writers of Warner Brothers' remake of Thirteen Ghosts. Writer Edith Swenson had previously written ten episodes of Tales from the Dark Side before contributing six episodes of Monsters an English teacher who had just moved with her husband and two young children to upstate New York, they were having a tough time making ends meet. When an episode of Tales from the Dark Side came on, this gave her an idea, as she told Jamie Bernard in 1991. I watched the show, and although I had never written a screenplay before, I said to myself, I can do that. And I did. Swenson was not a complete amateur, however. Years earlier, she had written a children's fantasy novel while living in Tangiers, and she had always been fascinated by supernatural tales. One of the earliest books I stole out of my mother's bedroom was some Edgar Allan Poe short stories when I was eight, and they affected me. And of course, The Twilight Zone probably warped my mind. I'm attracted to the supernatural, where it intersects with universal human desires to plunge beyond the limit. Everyone's got a dark side, maybe domination fantasies, maybe something else, but we leash them, we repress them. The stories I want to write explore the people who unleash these fantasies, whose passion is so big that they're willing to damn themselves in order to consummate it assisted by Laurel's Tom Allen, she submitted her first script on spec, which was produced as Darkside episode Strange Love, a vampire love story. As she worked on three more episodes, she found herself an agent and got a deal with Universal. Swenson's monsters episodes were The Vampire Hunter and Cocoon, season 2's Love Hurts, and for season 3, A New Woman, Desirable Alien, and household gods, although that last one had the ending changed by Monster's producers. She had originally ended the story with a steely look in the wife's eyes as she kissed her husband goodbye, implying his days were numbered. Showrunners chose to end it with knowing winks shared between the husband and the household god, dooming the women to a life of servitude. That's what happens when you write a script. It's like having a baby and putting it up for adoption. One day, when I write and direct my own material, I'll do it my way. Later, she managed to get a script produced for Star Trek The Next Generation, the fifth season episode, Imaginary Friend. She was story editor on Charmed, as well as co-producer on the Showtime series, Odyssey 5. She's also written 10 TV movies since 1993. The husband and wife writing team of Bob Schneider and Peg Holler contributed five episodes. They enjoyed working on Monsters, but it presented some challenges, as they told David Everett in 1989. Bob Schneider It's sort of like working in the old B-movie era. I used to love those movies, that kind of stuff that was shot in five days for $200. One of the things that's great about Monsters is it's good for writers. Because of the limited special effects and the limited sets, a lot of it has to be done with dialogue and characters. Peg Holler You have to pace things, so you have the hook in the first act, and you end the second act with a kind of Shrek that'll keep people going to the third act. Their first season contribution was Parents from Space, where the rats took over a girl's parents, second season's rerun with the undead movie star, Jar, where the mason jar held quite a surprise, and third season's Small Blessings with the mutant baby, along with the young and the headless. Writer D. Emerson Smith did three episodes. A bit of research reveals D. Emerson Smith is also David E. Smith, makeup effects artist on films such as Friday the 13th Part 2, Amityville 3D, Chud, and Day of the Dead. His last name is hardly coincidental. He is the son of makeup artist Dick Smith, who had provided effects for Way Out. Following in his father's footsteps, the younger Smith pursued a career in makeup effects but found the chemicals involved in epoxies and urethane foam gave him chemical poisoning, to the point where he had to be hospitalized. After recovering, he took a break from makeup effects for several years and pinned three Monsters episodes, The Mother Instinct from Season 1 and Microminds and The Gift from Season 2. His makeup effects experience was most valuable in writing scripts, telling Fangoria in 1989, I don't write anything that can't be done. This is one of the most complex shoots that they've done here, but it's still doable within four days. Following over a six-year break, he dipped his toe back into doing makeup effects for several more films, including Pulp Fiction and theme park attraction *Extraterrestrial Alien Encounter, which ran for over eight years at the Magic Kingdom's Tomorrowland at Walt Disney World. Writer F. Paul Wilson had penned the 1981 novel The Keep, which was adapted into a 1983 feature film. Through the publishing world, he knew Tom Allen, who called one night to compliment Wilson on his recent novel, The Touch. Wilson was invited to the Laurel offices in New York, where it was proposed he contribute a story for the upcoming Monsters series. The writing restrictions of Monsters' specific format had him come up with a completely new story, a sci-fi monster tale he had never put to paper. He sat down to write out a one-page treatment and sent it over to Laurel the next morning. A week later, Alan called with story notes to tweak the story closer to the monster's format. And then, the Writers Guild of America went on strike.
1: The writers walked out in March, calling the producer's contract offer ridiculous. But no one knew it would become one of the longest strikes in the history of the industry.
0: In something that should sound very familiar to listeners... At issue was residuals for reruns in an era where viewers were increasingly shifting over to cable TV. For five months, Monster's producers could not even discuss the script with Wilson. But when the strike ended, he joined the guild and had the script ready. Or so he thought. The Monster's rule of no exteriors was a sticking point, as he points out in a forum post on his official website. Soon I had a contract and was duking it out with Laurel about a third set. I wanted the penultimate scene to play out on the front steps of the library during a gentle snowfall. No exteriors, they told me. I explained that all you needed was a brick wall, a pair of doors, a set of steps, and some guy shaking snowflakes from the rafters. But that means three sets, they said. You're only allotted two. The budget won't allow more. I felt like I was butting my head against the brick wall I wanted them to build. So I moved the scene inside the library. Due to the delay revolving around the strike, the episode didn't air until January 30th. Apart from the disappointment of Glimglim's appearance, Wilson's main regret was that Tom Allen never saw the episode, having died suddenly on September 30th. Director Alan Coulter noted he always tried to deliver the unexpected in a Monsters episode, as he told David Everett. What I try to do is bring some sort of deadpan humor and irony. I don't think that's usually expected in this sort of programming. I've also tried to cast these shows as close to feature-style casting as I could, and then direct in a way that the performances are really low-key, as opposed to over-the-top. I've been trying to give these episodes a sense of reality, so that you buy what you're seeing. Coulter went on to helm episodes of miniseries Stephen King's Golden Years, Millennium, The Sopranos, and the 2006 feature film Hollywood Land. Michael Gornick rose from being a director in the first season to producer in seasons 2 and 3, working out of the New York studio. Associated with Laurel since 1973, he came up through the ranks, from cinematographer on Martin to director of Creepshow 2, and then on episodes of Tales from the Dark Side and Monsters. For season two of Monsters, he took over production at the New York studios and tried to keep the production fresh as it entered its second year, telling Fangoria in 1989... What I try to do personally this year, in terms of the program's visual quality, is mix in a lot more directors of photography. I also try to stress that we don't have too many directorial repeats, and that we try to look at a greater number of different set designers. If you do too many episodes in a row, you can get too staid on a series like this because the shows are taxing and they can become predictable. So I try to keep certain elements of the production fresh and novel. Even in terms of special effects makeup, even though we're relying on John Dodds to a certain extent in the beginning, we did intersperse him with Paul Riley and Kevin Haney, and hopefully we'll do more of that with people like Richard Alonzo and John Bisson. All of that's very healthy for a series. As noted at the beginning, some of the effects pushed the envelope for violence and gore for broadcast television. As noted by Michael Gornick to interviewer David Zulkin, the difference with Monsters was that it was produced for syndicated TV where, luckily there are currently no strict standards of practice in terms of violence. I live what the show is all about, which is makeup and special effects. Tom Allen had noted the same about Tales from the Dark Side in a 1986 interview. There's no standard and practices censors, no vice presidents trying to earn their stripes by picking at every little thing. The show is working, so they let it alone. There may have been no network broadcast standards department looking over their shoulder, but watchdog groups were indeed complaining about the level of violence in syndicated TV. For two years, Freddy's Nightmares and Friday the 13th The Series were called the most violent shows on TV by groups like the National Coalition on Television Violence. Since there was no TV network to complain to, the group targeted the show's advertisers in major markets. By early 1990, they claimed they had convinced 80% of advertisers on these programs, such as Coors Beer and Campbell's Soup, to drop their commercial buys. Interestingly, one of the main advertisers that declined to give up ad buys was the U.S. Army. One Ontario station even dropped Freddy's of its own volition, following viewer complaints and a local petition. Leaning into the criticism... Keith Samples of distributor Lorimar perhaps facetiously said, no one under the age of 18 will be murdered in this show. The TV watchdogs did have a valid point about Freddy's and Friday. While monsters consistently aired after 10 p.m. in most markets, in some local areas, you could catch the other two series earlier during prime time or incredibly even on Saturday afternoon even though Freddy's in particular was ostensibly produced for late-night time slots. Reports were that the Lorimar Sales Department assured local stations that it would play well at 8, 7 Central. Wink, wink. Thus, stations like Baltimore's UHF Channel 20 aired them in a Saturday night primetime programming block along with the Paramount-produced War of the Worlds, another series that regularly featured violence and body horror on par with R-rated films of the era. By 1991, with all three of these shows no longer in production, the Watchdog group seemed to move on to primarily complain about Saturday morning TV, with their crosshairs on the animated Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Keep in mind this was the pre-CGI era, and the vast majority of effects were practical, performed live on camera. While a few episodes used stop-motion or video effects done in post-production, the non-humanoid creatures of monsters were largely the physical creations of talented special effects artists, using materials like latex, clay, or foam rubber manipulated with wires, air bladders, or the hidden hands of effects crew. Actors could be transformed using makeup, facial appliances, and squibs that oozed blood or slime. With the effects desired caught live on film, this reduced the time needed for post-production. Like other syndicated series at the time, Monsters was filmed in 16mm instead of 35mm for budgetary concerns, but took advantage of new technology to edit digitally. Ever since Robert W. Paul edited two shots together for the comedy short Come Along, Do, in 1898, film editing had involved the physical cutting and splicing of film. The practice of film editing gave rise to the non-linear order of scene filming, allowing production and logistical considerations to determine the order in which scenes are filmed. Digital editing systems released in the mid-80s then added the capability of non-linear film editing. In 1985, UK-based Quantel released the Harry, the first all-digital video editing and effects compositing system. Using a hard drive array, the Harry produced a display representing three vertical film strips. When it was shown at the National Association of Broadcasters show in 1985, attendees gasped when an editor demonstrating the system cut a video clip on screen and pasted it into another clip. Editing would never be the same. Although Monsters worked with a very limited budget compared to other horror-themed shows, on occasion, the budget was adjusted to allow for more complex makeup effects. And for the second season, was increased, as Richard P. Rubenstein told Fangoria in 1989. We're doing a little bit more in the makeup effects area than we did in the first year. I'd say that from a production value standpoint, there may be 20% more emphasis on makeup effects this year. At the very beginning, to give The Fledgling Show an air of legitimacy, producers turned to the same special effects makeup master who had worked on Way Out some 27 years earlier. Dick Smith was brought in to work on the first episode, The Fever Man. After spending 15 years as the head of NBC's makeup department, He transitioned to the world of feature films, where he gained recognition for transforming Dustin Hoffman into the 121-year-old Jack Crabb in 1970's Little Big Man. But Smith certainly made a name for himself after audiences saw his work in 1973's The Exorcist. Having worked on Altered States, Scanners, The Hunger, Starman, and Amadeus by 1988, Smith was a well-known name in the business and continued to work as special effects consultant for Monsters, guiding the production to other talent that could be employed on the series. Just about every effects house in Los Angeles and the New York, New Jersey area worked at one time or another on Monsters during its production. Thus, over 50 makeup effects artists were employed over the course of the series, several of them newcomers to the field, learning the business in a world of increasing demand for special effects. These included Chris Bingham, who went on to feature films and makeup department head for Rescue Me, Colin Penman, later of the Saw films and high-profile TV-like the Strain, Star Trek Discovery, and American Gods. Judy Chen, later key makeup artist for Sex in the City and a slew of feature films. Vincent Skiki, later key makeup artist for the Amazing Spider Man films, Elementary, Forever, and Nurse Jackie. And Michael Burnett. Burnett began his career working in Rick Baker's Creature Shop learning his craft as an assistant on films like My Science Project, Gorillas in the Mist, and Harry and the Hendersons. Like many creatives, his interest in filmmaking started with an 8mm movie camera at age 9, as he related to Fangoria's Steve Biodrowski. My friends and I made a little movie with a Don Post Frankenstein mask. I thought, this is really cool. So I got into student filmmaking mostly science fiction, which was really big at the time because of Star Wars. When I hit college, I realized I couldn't do everything, so I had to decide what I wanted to specialize in. Makeup seemed to be what I liked best, so I decided to pursue that professionally. He actually ended up quitting school and went to work full-time for Rick Baker. Then he struck out on his own, forming his own makeup effects house. His first stint as the key makeup effects creator on a film was 1988's Twice Dead. This led to work on other films as well as Monsters. Working at Rick's was great for learning, but after Gorilla's, I felt I'd gone as far as I could go there. I had since moved to North Hollywood, and I set up a shop in my garage and did Twice Dead. It was incredibly low budget. If you take it per minute of film, each episode of Monsters actually had more money for effects. Burnett's Monsters contributions were on Rain Dance, The Demons, The Offering, and third season episodes Murray's Monster, Small Blessings, and Shave and a Haircut, Two Bites, which he worked on back to back. That was a little tough because we were on the set while preparing for the next one. I did the largest foam construction I'd ever done on shaving a haircut two bites. A 12-foot slug. The whole head was foam rubber latex. The limited budget on monsters did provide some challenges. I want to make something look good, regardless of how much money there is. There was a baby in one episode that needed to be very elaborate. We were only able to give it Eye Rotation, Eye Blink, and Head Rotation. The rest was Rod Puppeteered. In the show's context, which was kind of cartoonish, it was okay. If it had been in a more realistic film, then it would have been bad news. Following Monsters, Burnett produced a series of how-to videos on makeup effects and started selling kits for aspiring artists to make their own creations. He's worked on... Universal Soldier, Star Trek Enterprise, and Nemesis, The Chronicles of Riddick, and other films. Burnett has designed and run the makeup effects for Universal Studios' Halloween Horror Nights 17 times, and now works for Fright Night Studios, who specializes in providing effects for films and theme parks. FX wizard John Dodds was heavily relied upon during Monsters' first two seasons. Dodds told the Memory Movies website, I was 40 years old and had just finished taking Dick Smith's professional makeup course when Monsters went into production. Dick Smith recommended me for the Holly's House episode, which featured a killer doll. I was reliable and cheap, so they kept hiring me. Over three years, I supervised the effects for 18 episodes. Monsters was my first professional experience creating prosthetic makeup. I was used to low budgets, having grown up in the do-it-yourself world of Don Dohler-type, ultra-low-budget filmmaking. Dodd's first assignment was to bring to life Dick Smith's design for Holly the Killer Doll in Holly's House. Three days later, he was called back to create a bee monster for New York Honey. For the mother instinct, Dodds had to put together 13 constructions, which included several 18-inch mechanical worms and a 12-foot-long mother creature constructed around an air-conditioning duct. In the climax where the worm devours the greedy son-in-law, Dodds himself doubled for actor Tom Gilroy. Dodds elaborated on the Monsters' production style. Monsters may have been the most cheaply produced anthology series of all time. The executives' compensation ate most of the budget, leaving little for actual production. It was only through the heroic efforts of producers, directors, and crew that anything, any good, ever reached the screen. The budget was so low that when props were needed, series producer Jan Saunders would sometimes bring in furnishings from her house to dress the set with. This was also commented on by Todd Masters, who provided the demon makeup for Refugee. I remember first noticing how low budget this Monsters show was when first going into their offices for a meeting. It was in a crappy part of Hollywood, back when there were good parts of Hollywood, And they were all packed into this little space with offices and stages. I noticed that they were making fake rocks out of used cardboard boxes and weird stuff like this. It just screamed cheap. His next comments may shed some light on one way costs were kept so low. The production, for some reason, had made a mandate that each episode's makeup effects was to be done by a different company. So everyone came through these offices. Makeup effects was in its heyday, and we were rock stars. And here was a show that seemed to know it, and wanted all of us to guest star. In actuality, they knew they'd keep it cheap by having us all underbid each other. Master's early work provided a stepping stone to working on films like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Adam's Family Values, and Nightmare on Elm Street and Hellraiser sequels. East Coast effects artist Vincent Guastini got his first break in 1984 as an assistant on a film originally to be titled Twisted Souls, before the project morphed into another film called Spookies, released in a limited theatrical run in 1987. After a few more films, Guastini assisted John Dodds for much of the first season of Monsters. His first solo work on the show was transforming Chris Noth into the devil for first season's Satan in the Suburbs, followed by Parents from Space. Of the seven episodes I found him specifically credited for, he says the kid-friendly Mr. Schlobber was the most complicated as it had to convincingly mouth dialogue from actor Rockets Redglare and interact with young Robert Olivari. Guastini's crew of Vinnie Skeetje, Anthony Panella, Louis Zadarian, and Joe Macchia worked overtime to get Mr. Schlauber ready over an unusual two-month prep time ahead of filming. As he told Michael Gengold in 1990, We have had a couple of breakdowns, which were really disappointing. Because for weeks on end, after all the testing, it worked. And in all the medium shots, it worked. And all of a sudden, just as we were in the middle of a close-up, it's like the puppet got stage fright. We pulled a lever, and the lip just went, Doing! So we had to sit there and tweak it for a while to get it to work again. That's a problem with doing TV. If we couldn't fix it in ten minutes, we'd have to go with whatever we had. With film, you can stop for an hour or so to fix it, or do pickups later, which you can't do with TV. Guastini has run his own effects company since he was 22, and Post Monsters provided effects for films such as The Last of the Mohicans, Super Mario Brothers, and Requiem for a Dream. In 2001, he moved his company to the West Coast, continuing to provide animatronics, prosthetics, creatures, and makeup effects on well over 100 film and TV projects. The makeup effects for that opening segment of Monsters were done by Carl Fullerton and Neil Martz. Fullerton has a near 50-year history in special makeup effects going back to the late 1970s. Like several others, his inspiration for going into the field was the work of Dick Smith, specifically on 1970's Little Big Man, as profiled in Life magazine. Out of college, he applied for a makeup apprenticeship with NBC. One of his earliest creations was the Conehead family for Saturday Night Live. By the mid-70s, Smith recommended him to Stan Winston, for work on 1978's The Whiz*, From there, he progressed to work on 80s classics Altered States, Wolfen, The Hunger, and the Friday the 13th films. He still works in the business, most recently on The Equalizer films with Denzel Washington. Neil Martz's credits go back to 1983's Spasms and Amityville 3D. He has since worked with Fullerton on at least 15 projects, including My Demon Lover, Warlock, and The Silence of the Lambs. Martz is a talented sculptor whose work in bronze is award-winning, and his pieces have been used for commercial items such as busts of Elvis and John Wayne and historical figures for the Franklin Mint. The series' music theme was composed by Donald Rubinstein under the supervision of Robert Harari. Robert Harari is a music producer and sound designer that has worked on multiple Grammy-nominated albums and has worked with Gregory Hines, Barbara Streisand, Spike Lee, and others on live productions and films. Donald Rubinstein is the brother of show creator Richard P. Rubinstein and composed music for feature films like George Romero's Martin, included in Mojo's list of the top 100 soundtracks of all time. Romero's *Night Riders, Tales from the Dark Side, the movie, as well as the original TV series that inspired the film. Many remember getting chills hearing that eerie, Haunting series opening theme, and narration. The next popular TV horror anthology that captured pop culture attention seemed like a logical progression as more mature first-run content was moving over to cable TV.
1: Tales
0: Tales from the Crypt hit HBO the summer of 1989. With a title lifted directly from the 1950s EC Comics series, complete with font design and a style very similar to Creepshow, the series was hosted by The Crypt Keeper. Voiced by John Kassir, The Crypt Keeper was a decrepit animatronic corpse whose segments bookended the half-hour show, delivering horror-themed puns as he commented on the story. When publisher Russ Cochran started reprinting volumes of the original EC Comics over the 1980s, these attracted the attention of producers Joel Silver, David Geiler, and Walter Hill, who pursued the rights to the Tales from the Crypt property. Originally envisioning a feature film, this was abandoned in favor of a TV series. Carried on premium cable channel HBO, the producers did not have to comply with normal broadcast standards and were given free reign to include violence and gore, profanity and nudity. Tales from the Crypt became enormously popular, transcending the horror genre and entering mainstream pop culture especially after the series was syndicated and edited versions aired in reruns on regular broadcast TV. Though produced for an adult audience, some kids were absolutely watching. But even if they weren't, even young children knew who the Cryptkeeper was, as a result of a massive pop culture marketing push, spearheaded by Jack Wall, who had previously developed the TV property Sha Nana in the late 1970s. The cross-generational popularity of The Crypt Keeper became most evident when Canadian studio Nelvana, producer of The Care Bears, Star Wars animated droids and Ewoks shows, and Fival's American Tales, chose to adapt Tales from the Crypt in 1993 for Saturday morning TV on ABC. Wait what?
1: (laughs) From the <laughs>
0: I can hear Frederick Wortham turning over in his grave now. Yes, maybe it was kid-friendly horror, and the appearance of the cryptkeeper himself was heavily watered down. But these were some of the very same stories related in William Gaines' The Vault of Horror, The Haunt of Fear, and tales-from-the-crypt comics that had disturbed Congress enough to hold hearings over them in 1954. Yes, the same comics that George Romero had read under the covers as a boy, and were burned by angry parents and in cult-like school ceremonies. Incredibly, the budget for each animated Crypt Keeper episode was $400,000 nearly twice that of the episode budget of Monsters, or your average Saturday morning cartoon. Reruns of Monsters aired on the Sci-Fi Channel during the 1990s, and later on the Chiller Network in the early 2010s. In an era when home video releases of television shows was not all that common, select episodes were released on VHS by World Vision Home Video. Finally, the entire series was officially released on DVD in 2014 by Sony Pictures Home Entertainment. Although now out of print, the first season is available to watch free on Tubi and the Roku channel. Seasons 2 and 3 are easily found on the Internet Archive and YouTube. George Romero ended up remaking his 1968 original with 1990's Night of the Living Dead. Directed by longtime cohort Tom Savini. But five years earlier, the same summer, his third zombie film, Day of the Dead, hit theaters. It found competition in Dan O'Bannon's The Return of the Living Dead. The Return
1: of the Living Dead.
0: Released in August 1985, Return of the Living Dead was a sort of illegitimate sequel to the 1968 classic. Return had its origins in that original film, as Romero collaborator and co-writer John Russo split away and formed his own production company, retaining the Living Dead portion of the title for future works, while Romero kept the Of the Dead titling. Russo wrote Return of the Living Dead as a follow-up novel to the original 1968 story, but a direct film adaptation fell through. Dan O'Bannon then came on to rework the screenplay and take over as director. Adding a significant amount of humor and over-the-top gore, Return of the Living Dead was marketed as a punk rock zombie comedy and contributed the horror trope of zombies specifically desiring to eat brains, something that became so connected with the depiction of zombies in popular media, that it made it into The Simpsons in 1992.
1: Chapter eight. Let's talk zombies. If a zombie bites you, you become a zombie. You must walk the earth, feeding on the brains of the living until the spell is broken. Bear my family. Take me. Take me. <laughs>
0: While Richard Rubenstein remade Romero's Dawn of the Dead in 2004, after directing other projects, Romero too returned to the franchise with Land of the Dead in 2005, Diary of the Dead in 2007, and Survival of the Dead in 2009. In 2017, George Romero died at age 77 after what was called a brief but aggressive battle with lung cancer. Often called the father of the modern movie zombie, Romero continues to influence pop culture with shows like The Walking Dead, Z Nation, and The Last of Us, as well as feature films such as Shaun of the Dead, Zombieland, and World War Z. Richard P. Rubinstein went on to produce several Stephen King projects throughout the 1990s, including Golden Years, The Stand, The Langoliers, and Thinner. In 2000, along with Mitchell Galen, they brought Frank Herbert's Dune, a TV miniseries adaptation of the original 1965 novel to the Sci-Fi Channel, followed by Children of Dune in 2003. The stand was also remade in 2020 for the then named CBS All Access, and Rubinstein is credited as an executive producer on the recent big budget Warner Brothers remake of Dune with Timothy Chalamet. Mitchell Galen was involved with an attempt to revive Tales from the Dark Side in twenty fifteen for the CW, along with Jerry Golid, producers Alex Kurtman and Roberto Orky and writer Joe Hill. Yes, the original weird kid from Creepshow. Joe's real last name is King, and you might have heard of his dad. Unfortunately, this revival never made it past the pilot stage. Galen did produce the supernatural drama Superstition for sci-fi and produced two episodes of the Shudder original series Creepshow which has been running since 2019. Galen still has a couple of irons in the fire, one of which is another Stephen King adaptation. Dick Smith, nicknamed the godfather of makeup, in November 2011 was honored by the Motion Picture Academy with an honorary Oscar in a presentation conducted by Rick Baker in recognition of his life's work. He was the first makeup artist to ever be so honored. He died in 2014 at age 92, but his work carries on in the many makeup and visual effects artists he inspired during his life. Monsters, however, live on. From the creatures that lurk in the dark corners of our television screens to the age-old legends that have haunted our cultural narratives for centuries. Monsters continue to fascinate and scare us, offering a mirror through which we can explore ideas revolving around our fear of mortality. As long as curiosity about the unknown exists, so too
1: will monsters. Remember, the dark side is always there. Waiting for us to enter. Waiting to enter us. Until next time, try to enjoy the daylight.
0: Next time on Forgotten TV... It may have been one of the oddest entries of 1970s live-action Saturday morning TV. For 19 weeks in 1974, third-season Star Trek producer Fred Freiberger and Hanna-Barbera brought a serious attempt at educational TV to ABC. As Burgess Meredith narrated the adventures of a family of primitive man during the Ice Age. They were fighting for survival in the savage, prehistoric world. Join me as we explore Korg, 70,000 BC. That's next time on Forgotten TV. Forgotten TV is an independent, listener-supported podcast and is now found on Spotify. You can even connect your Spotify and Patreon accounts and subscribe to the exclusive supporter podcast feed. Support the podcast through Patreon or PayPal, and you can become a producer of the show. You could also support the show at no cost by taking a moment to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. There's only been four reviews in the last two and a half years. If you've enjoyed this year's extensive considerations of Grizzly Adams, V, the history of the MPAA ratings, and Saturday Morning TV, consider leaving a review. Forgotten TV is executive produced by Will Welton, Doc Pinko, Joshua Driscoll, Ron, Kenny Siegel, and Tony Cook, with producers Julio Coppa, K.L. Young, Trevor Pearson, Mark Hadley, and John Malcolm. And of course, thanks to all who support at the $1 and $2 levels. Forgotten TV is not affiliated with or authorized by Laurel Entertainment, Tribune Entertainment, Entertainment One Limited, or any production company or network involved in the making of any TV show or film mentioned in this podcast. Links to Amazon or affiliate, and as an Amazon associate, Forgotten TV earns royalties from qualifying purchases made. All characters and series mentioned are the property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Audio clips included are for the purposes of historical context, review, commentary, and criticism only, and are not intended to infringe. Additional audio used under license by Epidemic Sound. If you need music for your podcast or YouTube channel, check out Epidemic Sound, link in the show notes. This podcast is copyright 2023 Forgotten TV Media. The views and opinions expressed by guests and quoted sources are their own and may not reflect the opinion of Forgotten TV Media, its patrons, or any future sponsors. This podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only. Information presented is based on a combination of first-hand personal accounts, period news media, books, and high-quality online sources. While reasonable effort has been made to include only factual information, Forgotten TV Media cannot guarantee the accuracy of every detail included and makes no representations or warranties for the content in this podcast and cannot be held liable for errors or omissions. I'd like to take this opportunity to acknowledge the research of Tom Fallows, Nick Pinkerton, John Kenneth Muir, and the enigmatic DVD News Flash of the Memory Movies website, and also acknowledge the passing of Monsters effects artist Bill Basso, who died May of this year, gone too soon at age 60, as well as Night Court star Richard Mall, seen on season 2's The Demons, just recently having passed away at age 80. And I'd like to thank the following YouTube channels for making a lot of those audio clips possible May Day, Killing Moon. Movie and Video Game TV Spots Grindhouse Grooves Exploitation Soundtracks Fishman Laura Corti The TF2 Sniper Rotten Tomatoes Classic Trailers Derek S Matt's Productions 12 Crazy About TV An Octopus Oak Park Studio Charmed 1008 Curloy Mitternacht Music The Museum of Classic Chicago Television Children's Video Library, 80s Then, 80s Now, Rad Mardigan, Laura's in A.V., Binksy Girl Forever, Lair of Horror, K.J. Norman, Classic TV Commercials. Sources of quotes and background information not given directly to Forgotten TV were obtained from the following. The books, Terror Television, American Series, 1970-1999 by John Kenneth Moore. Night of the Living Dead Behind the Scenes by Joe Kane. The Articles, The Laurel Story, an industrial intersection of authorship, cult film, and independent cinema in an American motion picture production company by Tom Fallows. The Movie Monk by Nick Pinkerton. Fangoria, Horror Spectaculars No. 2 and 4, and Regular Issues 13, 81, 89, 94, and 102. Gore Zone, No. 6 Fantastic Volume 15, Number 4 And content from the following online sources Tales from the Crypt From Comic Books to Television 2004 DVD Special Feature New World Pictures Podcast Interview with Mitchell Galen Variety, Den of Geek UPI Archives WillWheaton.net AFI Catalog Media Funhouse Blog Creative Screenwriting, Repairman Jack, F. Paul Wilson's official website, West Side Seattle, Memory Movies, Neil Mart's official website, Lapham's Quarterly. Thank you for listening. Be sure and bookmark Forgotten TV for all content and links to social media sites. I am your writer, producer, and host, Chris Cooling, and this has been Forgotten TV ah ha ha ha